0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from the alto aria, from the cantata, O Ewiges Feuer, O Ursprung der Liebe, BWV34. So much of this music is fire. Like actual a depiction of fire is what <laughs> I'm trying to say. Foyer in German. Yeah. yeah. Not, uh, I'm not saying it's cool, but it is cool. <laughs> it's cool. But it's not well, cool, it's cool It's not cool in that it's not cold. It's fire. So it's hot. So it's hot. Right. <laughs> well, what <laughs> I'm saying is that it's a box musical description of fire in the sense of the Holy Spirit. And now we need to back up and describe why would Bach do such a thing. But if you listen to the, some of the music from the first movement of this glorious cantata, you can see that the violins and everyone is doing this frenetic, really energetic stuff. And sometimes it's in the voice parts when they sing that word, fire. You can tell it's just like leaping and dancing really fast and it's energetic and it's it's not like a destructive like forest fire type of fire. You know, there's so many different kinds of fire. It's not like that. This is like uh, almost like a fireplace type of fire, dancing and leaping joyfully and doing a lot of interesting things visually. This is a Pentecost cantata and that is a very specific part of the church year. You can't look at a lot of Bach's music without understanding why he wrote church year themes into his music you know we always come across this yesterday was Pentecost Sunday that's why I picked this today would be Pentecost Monday the date of this episode's release not really something that we might think of these days but Bach would have celebrated it as part of the whole Pentecost time of year it comes from the story in the Bible in the book of Acts the festival of Pentecost in the church year this part of the Bible To break it down a little bit, this is in the New Testament. It is sort of like a post-Jesus part of the Bible, right? This is Jesus has come and gone. Now his followers are the apostles and they're doing all these acts in Jesus's name. And then you have this story where it says that the Holy Spirit descends upon them and tongues of fire go on them. And it's kind of, it seems kind of spooky or scary, but it's actually, Supposed to be a really good thing. It causes them to gain the ability to speak different languages, right? And and so then they can communicate with all these different people. And Alex, you pointed out to me that there's a great part where where someone argues in the Bible and says maybe they're just drunk at this point. Yeah, you know, they hear all these people speaking all these different languages. Yeah, right. But it, even though it's only the third hour, <laughs> which in the Jewish daylight system, you know, that's like nine a.m. So, yeah, and Peter goes up there and he explains to them. No, listen, they're not drunk. It's only nine a.m. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Right? Can't you see that the spirit is at work here? And instead, a lot of people were just like, "Well, what the heck is going on here?" Yeah. And that and that word "spirit" is very interesting because, of course, that word, if you trace it, it usually means like, you know, something spooky or ghost or something. But really, if you think about the words that come from the same word in Latin that makes the English word "spirit." You're talking about words like conspire and inspire, inspiration. And what this means is like breathing together or coming together with breath or wind or something like that. So the word spirit and the word wind and the word breath are all, uh, in terms of like word origin, they're all related, right? And in this case, we're talking not about any spirit, but we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and that brings in an aspect of theology that Bach would have been very well aware of when he wrote this cantata, which is that this is an aspect of God, actually. And this is part of the Trinity, right? So you've got three parts to God. God is one thing, but also three persons within the one thing. And it's a very um, complicated concept and tricky to explain, and famously so. Yeah. But the idea is that there is one God, but then It's also in three persons and then the one is God the Father and then the second is God the Son who is manifested and comes to earth in human flesh and that's Jesus. And then the third one, there is a third one and that one is the Holy Spirit and it has its own function, right? And this is what it is. It's to inspire, well, that's where we get the word inspire. It's to enter into people's hearts and cause them to spread the word of God and things like that. Yeah, and to cause them to... Have faith, basically. I mean, that part of the theology of that is that the Holy Spirit is the main thing that causes people to come to faith. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, of course, this is manifested a lot of different ways across different denominations and types of Christianity, but a lot of them agree on on this being part a big part of the um, what they call the Trinity. So this is actually a really important festival, and in Bach's time it would have been celebrated with a few different stuff, even on some weekdays, not just Sunday. But one of the festival cantatas for pentecost sunday would have been this one you see that even in the title the eternal fire the word eternal gets this long note the word fire is set to music with such delightful and energetic motifs So it's just like really on the nose for Bach, right? He's really good at text painting on the nose. It doesn't have to be that complicated. It's just eternal, or that gets a long note. Fire, that gets these fast little fiery notes, right? And we're we're zeroing in on the moment of Bach today, which is in the middle of the cantata. The thing about Bach cantatas is there's always a movement in the middle because he always uses an odd number of movements. He was very interested in the way things were numerologically organized. This cantata has five parts. We talked about the first a little bit, The last part is also really neat in that it comes straight off a connecting recitative section where it ends with the sudden joyful outcry of the entire choir singing peace upon israel and then it goes right into its nice peppy closing movement Which is not a strict and simple Bach chorale, but a fully fleshed out choral piece, which we would normally expect to be at the beginning of the cantata. Here Bach wrote one at the beginning and one at the end. Yeah, But probably the most famous part about this cantata, and some people's I want to say favorite aria of all time, is this middle alto aria. Take a listen to the very beginning here. The music of this cantata comes from a wedding cantata that Bach wrote earlier, and then he rearranged it for the Pentecost theme. It was a pretty direct A to B to go from the kindling of the fire of love in two people's hearts, you know, in in the union of, of the church as well, to uh, changing that or editing the text just a little bit so that it turns into the kindling of the fire of the Holy Spirit in everyone's hearts for Pentecost. Makes sense. Worked out fine. In the third movement you have the words, Happy are you, you chosen souls, elected by God as his dwelling place. Who could choose a greater glory? And so that refers to Pentecost, the events, right, of Pentecost where fire comes down and tongues of flame rest on these people, uh, on these followers of Jesus, and bestow them with these special, interesting powers. And musically, I'm especially drawn to this aria because of what I'm going to call its orchestration, wouldn't you say, Alex? Yeah, I think it's probably something that musically stood out to you too. It's just like something we don't expect to see in baroque music. And that is the way, the way that Bach doubles up these instruments, right? Yeah, the octave specifically. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that two musical instruments can play together, right? Let's say that there's a violin and a flute. They could play different notes at the same time. We could we could call that harmony. They could play different notes at different times and maybe they've got completely independent music melodically going on. And if that worked together somehow, we might call that counterpoint. But they could also play exactly the same notes, right? And this happens in Baroque music sometimes. You'd call that doubling at the unison. So to use a musical term, you would call that unison. And that happens a lot. And sometimes it happens with voices and instruments together in this time period, right? And in time periods before this and after this. You might have a choral work where the first violins play with the sopranos, the second violins play exactly with the altos, and so on and so forth, and that creates a nice blend. And, I mean, anytime you sing in a choir, you're singing in unison with somebody else, too, because you're not singing your part alone. Exactly. And for for string parts, technically, you know, in a typical sense, that's what would happen with the string parts, too. You wouldn't just have one violin playing the violin one part and one violin playing the violin two part. They'd be at least two on each of those parts um although sometimes with these things did you have a smaller orchestration right with Bach yeah he, I mean he wouldn't always have multiple violins playing each violin part you can think of it like a, the difference between a string orchestra and a really small thing like a string quartet right yeah. if you think of it a string quartet as a genre didn't really exist in Bach's time yet um in the same way that it would later after Haydn and Mozart and stuff like that but a string quartet is just four people right There's two violins, one viola, one cello. But a string orchestra, or even a small string orchestra like the ones used in these Baroque orchestras, that'd be like a handful of violins, right? A couple of violas, maybe even more than one cello. Um, Not necessarily more than one cello. Maybe it's something like four or five violins with two parts split between them. Maybe two violas and one cello and one bass and maybe that's it for the strings, right? Right, and they all have their own different parts. So I've said now that you could have two instruments like a violin and a flute playing two completely separate parts, but or maybe they're playing at the same time, but different notes. We might call that harmony. Maybe they're playing the exact same thing. We might call that unison. But maybe they're playing the same thing, but in different ranges, and one of them is just playing that thing higher than the other, but the same notes, but higher. And for those of you who are familiar with how musical notes work, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about octaves. And if you're not, then it just means that if violin starts on C and the flute's gonna start on C and they're both gonna play a melody together they could start on the same C or the flute could start on the next C up because the musical alphabet does repeat that way after seven notes of the alphabet right so that's it and that creates something different but most importantly for us today that creates something that doesn't really happen very much with melodic stuff in the Baroque period does it right that just seems out of place And this is another thing where we have to think like how it would have sounded to the people of the time. Because now we have plenty of music that actually does this all the time, so it's not a special thing anymore. And even just the next couple hundred years, the composers would experiment with this more. And that's why to the trained ear, when you hear this aria, you go, whoa, this doesn't sound Baroque. This sounds like later classical, like all of the sudden. Kind of ahead of its time, you could argue. And it's just, that, it's just that little detail there, of these notes being in octaves. But it's not just that they're in octaves, it's that there are two parts, each in octaves. So violin one is playing a certain line, and flute one is playing that line at the octave above. And this is not harmony, but one combined melody. Violin two is playing a different line and flute, too, is playing that line at the octave above. So you get a, a lot more thickness there than you would get if they were all playing at the unison. Right, and Alex, you also pointed out to me how the two independent musical parts, that is, the violin one and flute one together, and the violin two and flute two together, have this sort of interplay that's almost bouncing off each other symmetrically, right? Yeah, a lot of times Bach uses similar figures and he... Flips them upside down, or or um, repeats them, and you know it's just economy of musical material that he's he and other baroque composers are so good at. But this one is particularly interesting to me because it's exactly the same, but it just it's just opposite. They're they're mirrors of each other, and then they they just seesaw back and forth. It's like a it's like a seesaw. Yeah. <laughs> like so, the the top one, the violin one and flute one, starts by coming up and then floating down like this. This is up and then down. And then the violin two and flute two one is the exact opposite. It comes down and it comes up. Yeah. And they just go together. And when you hear them together, it just sounds like this beautiful blend. But when you separate them, you realize they are the inverse of each other. the thing that Bach loved to do to work out the musical puzzle of composition yeah that's one thing that we love about Bach I think I can speak for both of us to say this but um, so many composers can do a great job with creating memorable melodies and lovely sounding uh, harmony and chords and things like this Uh, lovely orchestration like we just talked about but Bach is pretty special in that side of it that you just said Christian that sort of putting together the musical puzzle of it to think this is why composers like to study Bach is because once you start looking at it you can just see where his mind was going with this stuff you can see the sort of puzzler in him um, trying to figure this out and trying to see if he could make it work really elegantly obviously uh, such an accomplished composer he's got the ability to do that so you can look at anything by Bach and you can find little puzzle pieces being connected like this And it's just always a joy to explore that and to experience it when you're studying the scores. Yeah, and and regarding the orchestration, the maestro Jos van Welthoven describes this as creating new instruments. And what he means is, by pairing up the violin with the flute an octave higher, and then another violin part with the flute an octave higher than that, Bach creates a composite instrument that neither sounds like a violin nor a flute, right? And because it's yeah. a Baroque flute, it's a little lighter, not a modern flute, which is a little more piercing. But it creates this thing that is new, right? It's not exactly a flute, and it's not exactly a violin. Yeah, and, and the kinds of colors that that opens up, it, it makes you realize just how many options that later composers would avail themselves of. So, like, for instance, in the Romantic era, you'd have People like um, Rimsky-Korsakov and Camille Saint-Saens, for just a couple examples, who were using these kind of things, but in a more and just an even more compounded way. Like, there's some stuff by Saint-Saens where he's ha- he has a melody, and then instead of being doubled at the octave above, it's doubled at like the octave and fifth, I think, and it it gives it a overtone sound. It gives it kind of an interesting bell-like sound. It com- sounds like a completely different instrument. I forget what it is, but I think it's maybe two flutes playing like that, and or maybe it's a clarinet below and a flute above. But it's something like that, and it doesn't sound like either of those instruments. You know, It just yeah. has a completely different timbre because of that. And we've talked a little before about overtones, musical overtones, and how they create the actual sound, like the timbre of an instrument, like mm-hmm. the way you can tell the difference between a flute and a oboe, for example, the way that your brain picks that out is based on the overtone series of each particular tone. And when that flute plays that one C, the amount of the fundamental C that you're hearing, plus the amount of the overtone C above it, plus the amount of the overtone G above that, plus the blah, 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 so on and so forth, the amounts of those overtones give that instrument its own sound profile. And that's what lets you distinguish between the different timbres or sounds sound colors of those instruments. And once you do something like what Bach has done here, it sort of tricks the brain. And you and you think, yeah. oh, that doesn't really sound like either of those instruments anymore. Right. And it's much more interesting than just putting them in unison too, which creates an instrument that sounds a little bit different than a violin and a flute, but just sounds like them together. But this sounds like a completely different instrument. And um, by the way, Alex, the example that occurs to me is Ravel's Bolero, where, oh, yeah, yeah. Where uh, there's definitely some almost organ-like things trying to be accomplished there in the orchestration. Because this is also, for those of you out there who who uh, play the uh, organ, like the church or- pipe organ, um, or you're interested in, in that kind of music, this is how organs work, right? Yeah, I was going to totally bring that up. I and mean, it completely yeah. is. Like you, You can just add a bunch of sounds on top of each other that are, in the same octave in other words you can create a big old fat sound that's unison yeah where those where each of those pipes that you're turning on are all the same length different like, sounds but the same length in other yeah. words like a, like a bunch of people playing the same c or d right the resulting combination will feel like one sound But what you mostly do to play medium to loud on an organ is not exactly that. Instead, you turn on smaller and smaller pipes that are basically mathematical divisions of the pipe length of the bigger one, right? Yeah. And by turning on pipes that are half as long, you add a sound that's an octave higher and it creates, just like Bach did here, a more colorful sound. And then you can add one higher than that and higher than that and higher than that to notes that you will never actually hear with your ear independently. But it adds up and creates a sound that makes it completely unique and colorful. In much the same way that other instruments like a flute or an oboe already are, naturally and unchangeably you can, with a pipe organ, basically synthesize your own. So the idea of of making different tone colors and sound qualities and putting them together is called orchestration, right? And that is a term that makes you think of orchestra. And in Bach's time, there was there was orchestra, right? But it wasn't big yet. It got bigger in the classical period. It got way, way bigger in the Romantic era and up to the modern day. Now it's huge, but sometimes we forget that in Box Day was smaller, so when he experimented with orchestration things like this, it was a big deal. The first college class I ever taught was an orchestration seminar, and I did make a point of doing some Baroque stuff, but you could easily completely skip it. An orchestration class could basically start at Mozart or Haydn or Rimsky Gorsakov with that book. (laughs) Or you could start Yeah. yeah, it could start later and go backwards. It kind of jumps in the deep end if you do that. But yeah, that's where you get all the complicated stuff. Yeah, if you're thinking about the symphony orchestra, it doesn't exist yet in Bach's time. Bach's orchestra still small. It has a harpsichord in it, maybe. You know, it's led by, like we've said before, it's led by somebody in there, not a conductor probably. It's completely different. And so that's what I love about this cantata is because this shows another aspect of Bach's ingenuity because he didn't know that in several hundred years, Composers would obsess with every little tiny combination of octaves, etc., that there could be. He hadn't gotten that far in history yet. All he knew is that if he took a violin and a flute and put the flute higher than the violin, then he could create a new thing to create this beautiful pastoral sound, which formed this perfect middle of this Pentecost cantata. Yeah, and another cool thing is that once the alto soloist comes in, that part basically just triples that. So now you've oh, got yeah. the you know, you've That's got right. the violin one and flute one and alto soloist all on the same pitches. And I guess thinking about these pitches, the violin part is right. It's in unison with the alto it's at the unison with the alto. Yeah, but the flute's and, still up but the flute is still up there up the octave, yeah. Yeah, you never hear you never get to hear someone singing like a solo and then a flute playing with them an octave higher in this time period in history. Very interesting. So one other thing I love about the text, just jumping back to that, is just, and this is everything about the book of Acts, but basically everything from here on, it's like the beginning of the Christian church. It's like the early Christian church. From here in this story from Acts all the way till now is the history of the Christian church. So for people like us and for people like Bach and for anybody that was involved in making music in church or any kind of worship planning or pastors or anything like that, Acts is always a great read because it's like what did these people do after Jesus died and uh, and after he was raised from the dead and after he ascended into heaven then this happened then Pentecost happened the spirit was there with all these people and showing them the word in all their different languages and so then after that it's like that's kind of like the uh, breaking of the curse of the Tower of Babel from uh, from the Old Testament right where everybody ended up speaking different languages so that they so they wouldn't get along And now it's like, actually, all the different languages are saying the same message, and that's the message of the gospel, right? So it's a really cool book, Acts is, and it starts with Jesus ascending into heaven. So it's like the whole rest of that is like, okay, what do these people in the early church do? And it's it's just a really inspiring thing to see, (laughs) to use another spirit word, right? Inspiring thing to see um, what the spirit did in these people's lives and how once jesus was not here on earth anymore as a person how they had to carry it on and i think bach would have been looking at that you know and in, in his way too and as he was thinking of how he was going to write this cantata yeah and also the whole thing about bach using the german language to write yeah. his cantatas because not really that many hundreds of years before that it was completely illegal or not acceptable yet to do so and it was a newer thing to reuse music in worship services or to write music in your vernacular language like german which yeah which the fact that bach did so meant that he was really confident in saying the people's languages should be what they experience church and also music in and because of that It's much like that passage from Acts 2, where this stuff should all be in German because we speak German, so I'm translating the old holy, sacred things into my language. And for Bach, that's great because then he gets to also compose music to the people who spoke German and could understand this. And in doing so, um, just like in the story in Acts, he can be inspired to create something that he knows will reach people. And now... Here is the intro to that alto aria. if this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of O Ewiges Feuer, O Ursprung der Liebe, BWV 34, by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also, we have a website at momentofbach.com, and please go there you can see that you can fill out a form there to suggest a moment of bach for us and we would love to hear your suggestions yeah we would love it if you rated and reviewed us too on whatever podcast app that you subscribe to speaking of that we are now on i think basically everything you could want us to be on if you're looking for us on spotify or pandora or iheartradio we're at those places too and any of those places please be sure to do whatever it says to uh, like or rate us Also, we're very pleased to see that we apparently have some international listeners, that is to say, listeners outside of the United States, which is where we're recording. And that's really cool. We think that's great. We want to know who you are and um, what country you're in and and maybe like how you found out about the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Reach out to us. And that goes for everybody. Also, just listeners in the U.S. too. You know, we love to hear feedback and we love to hear from you. And like you said, Christian... Your ideas for the next Moment of Bach would be really cool, too. And if you're wondering how to do that, if you want to do it privately, you can just use that message function on our website or email us. We also have our, the, email, the Gmail address for a Moment of Bach at gmail.com. But also, uh, if you want to post it on a social media platform, you can just do so on our Instagram or Facebook page as well. Yeah. So, Alex, what will we be talking about next week? We will be talking about Herz und Mund und Tat und Leben, BWV 147, and specifically the best-known part of that cantata, which is a piece that I bet you know if you're listening to this right now, and that is Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Yeah. And exciting for us, we'll have our first guest interview on this show, and we are looking forward to that. Until next time, enjoy those moments.